Before I begin this evening, I want to give a shout out to all the folks who are listening on podcast. I am really um, deeply humbled and honored that you would take some time to listen to what I have to say, and I hope my words, as I say at the end of most of my talks, I hope these words are of some benefit, and uh, thank you for being part of Undefended Dharma and being part of our extended Sangha, and I wish I could say hi to each of you by name, but instead I'll just say, hey y'all, hope it's well in your lives, hope you're finding some ease Uh, and some freedom through this practice. And uh, if you ever have any questions or comments or anything, please feel free to reach out. You can just send me an email at uh, mary at marystancavage.org or find me on my website. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And what I want to talk about this evening is not so much a particular topic, but I had some thoughts um, that are kind of related, so I wanted to touch on them and see if I can kind of weave them together. And uh, Thursday, uh, December 8th, what is, was what's called Bodhi Day, which is considered the day that the Buddha achieved enlightenment. He sat under the tree and had the awareness uh, began and understood the fundamental truths about the human condition and suffering and the end of suffering. And uh, obviously it's not the actual day. It didn't happen December 8th, but that's the, the day that they've... Um, I don't know how long it's been considered that, probably for a very long time. That's the day that has been determined it will be celebrated. And it's it's like with any of these holidays, it's, I doubt, unless we know exactly, um, but these things are lost in the midst of time. Uh, it's And I'm, you know, I'm thinking it falls in with the rest of these holidays that occur around now. I read last week that between the end of November and the end of December, there are like 14 religious holidays for multiple religions that are celebrated during this time, all kinds of um, celebrations. And my guess is that it probably has something to do with the winter, the solstice, um, the, 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 the dark and the light. And uh, it's a good time of year to spend time in reflection. It's a good time of year for drawing in. It can be a challenging time of year, but it also lends itself, at least for me, I really I really appreciate this time of year. I appreciate the darkness here in the Northern Hemisphere uh, and uh, the time for reflection and uh, moving towards renewal. So December 8th, Bodhi Day, is when we celebrate uh, the the enlightenment of the Buddha and it's I think what's really one of the important parts about it is well a he 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 um, as I said um, recognized the 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 nature of suffering the four noble truths the eightfold path um, the characteristics of existence where the life is unsatisfactory there is dukkha there is life is impermanent anicca 
Um, there's no self, anatta, no fixed self. We're all conditioned beings. One thing leads to another because of this, this arises. This really important perspective on the world that once we understand that, we move towards freedom. But another really important part of this is that Siddhartha Gautama, who, when he became enlightened, was known as the Buddha, which means enlightened one, he was just a person. He was just a human being. So this path is available to all of us. We don't have to have any supernatural characteristics. We don't have to be um, saved by anything outside. We have the, they're the teachings which we absorb, we take, we study, we put into practice, and then we move towards enlightenment, liberation ourselves. And the, there's the, the, the liberation of this moment that um, that uh, many teachers talk about, and then there's the enlightenment, the nirvana, the cessation of suffering, and the end of rebirth. Another part of this teaching uh, around the Bo- the Buddha's um, awakening was when um, he was reached this place of of seeing clearly the nature of existence and and the nature of suffering and the end of suffering. That Mara who's the personification of, of the devil, so to speak, um, of greed, hatred, and delusion, um, started going after the Buddha with, with some, some things to tempt him, some, some things to uh, attack him with, um, to instill ha- anger or hatred or lust. And then the Mara said to the Buddha, who do you even think you are? There's this, this trying to instill this seed of doubt. Who do you think you are to think you've got this going on? And the Buddha said, um, this is when he reached down, and you can see it in many, 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 um, many uh, images of the Buddha. I don't know if you can see this. He's got his hand reaching down to touch the earth, and the earth bore him witness. And... um, it said that the earth shook and there was all this stuff that, you know, it was like, nope, this dude has it. So the earth bore him witness and Mara just said, I'm out of here. And the first time I heard that was in a retreat. I mean, I heard it before, but the first time I heard it where it landed viscerally and it was like this electric shock because I've had a lot of those those, sometimes I hear these things and they resonate and it, for me it feels like this, poof, this, this real jolt. Um, first time that happened to me around this story was on a women's retreat. I was on many, many years ago with Joanna Macy, who was an amazing teacher, an amazing person. Uh, and she explained it and she said, basically the Buddha said, you know, when Mara said, who the hell do you think you are? And the Buddha said, I am, just because I am. And I like to take that, too, as a, when doubt arises, which is one of the hindrances, when who am I to think that I can do this? Who am I to think anything when we have doubt? Do we deserve this? Why do we get the good job? How come our life is so good when we see other things, other people suffering so greatly? And it's like, because, just because. I am. There doesn't need to be any justification for who we are or how we move through the world, how we proceed with this path, this way of being that 
that is of benefit not only to ourselves but to all beings. It's so important, so important. And um, one of the um, one of the uh, things that became clear to the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment was the the awareness of karma, kama, uh, and. It said that in one, the watch of the when he was uh, part of that night, he saw all his rebirths, all his lives, all his deaths, all his rebirths, and the clinging and um, the 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 clinging and the attachment that kept that cycle going of doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over. And we can see it in the course of the teachings of the scriptures. If you, if you, if you believe in these ideas of rebirth over and over again, or just in how we live our lives, doing the same thing over and over again, attached to ideas of, of what we want or what we don't want or what should or shouldn't be. And that's the karma. And so I, and Looking into that, I was also thinking the other day I was walking, um, I was going on a little hike, and I don't even remember what it was, but I had some thought that reminded me of something that happened years and years ago, and like I said, I don't even remember what it was, but I started thinking about that experience, and it was an intentional time that I took to think about this past event, I think it was pleasurable, or it was fun, or it was a sweet remembrance. I, I wish I could remember it now, but I don't. Oh, well. Um, and I stopped and I said, this is interesting because I get this question a lot in meditation when people are meditating because you know, the invitation is to come back and let go of the thoughts that take you away. And I often get the question, well, I have to plan. I'm going to school, and I have to plan for you know, my exams, or I have to, um, you know, plan, uh, we're going on a trip, and I have to plan for that, or whatever, how do I look in the future, and thinking about my childhood, or thinking about, you know, my parents who have passed, or friends, how do I do that and stay in the present, and there is a way to do that when we intentionally do that. The, the practice is about eyes wide open, being aware there's this volitional aspect to it, and that is part of karma. This um, uh, karma is action or doing, but it also means volition or will. When we do something, there is volition behind it. So this volitional thought that I was having the other day was like, I am intentionally thinking about this right now. It's like sometimes it's like, you know what, I'm just going to check out and watch a movie or read a book and not have to worry about something, take myself out. But we know what we do, we're doing. We have this clarity around it, which is the difference um, and makes the difference in karma. Um, the Buddha talked about um, we have this volition in body and speech and mind. It's like, you know, how we act, what we say, what we think. And um, Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, was talking about this in something he wrote, and he said that, or the Buddha said that this, 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 uh, these mental formations that our thinking takes are either meritorious, wholesome, wise, skillful, demotorious. Who, who says that word? Is it demi But I know it's where demerit comes from. 
or demeritorious, not meritorious, unskillful, unwholesome, unwise, or, you know, just clouded in ignorance, deluded. And so as with everything, there's this binary and it's like either taking you towards suffering, towards awakening or away from it. And karma is driven by this volition, this intentionality behind what we do, what we say, what we think. And so we need to be clear that we're moving in a wise way. And even if we say, I am intentionally going to do such and such, the, and why we're doing what we're doing might be clouded in delusion, conditioning. You know, I think I need to have a particular relationship or a particular, I, I have to, you have to look at me in a certain way. I have to make you think X, Y, or Z, or we have to make sure the world unfolds rightly, or this person has to win in this particular election, or whatever it is we have this attachment to, that stuff might be deeply conditioned and we're not aware of it. So we're making choices and we know we're making choices, but we're un the, the roots are unknown and unwise. And so this practice is about disentangling that deep conditioning, disentangling the, 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 what is it? The dust, clearing our eyes of dust, you know? It's important to be grounded and have clarity because, um, and this is where, this is where the teachings come in. The teachings around the Eightfold Path and how to move through the world because part of this is moving through the world without causing harm bodily, mentally, um, verbally to others or to ourselves. And that for me is the yardstick. And if my volitional actions or what I do volitionally causes harm, However that's defined, not doesn't mean I'm punching someone in the face, but am I harsh with someone? Do I dismiss people? Do I take what's not mine? Do I steal? Do I lie? Do I cheat? Do I, do I hurt people because of what they look like, where they come from, who they love? Those types of things, if I'm causing harm, however, then that's unskillful. And that moves us towards this direction of, of, of uh, unwise volition. And so how do we get out of there? How do we um, disentangle? And we may not know where this stuff came from. We may not know the roots. Uh, we may not have the seeds uh, but we know what the experience is in this moment and how do I disentangle ourselves in this moment and not stay tangled moving forward. That's the freedom. That's the movement away from dukkha and the movement towards freedom and liberation. And so, of course, mindfulness. Mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness. Part of the Eightfold Path and meditation. 
And so I've talked many volumes of words about that, and I always point to the impact that mindfulness has on the brain, and then I always have a disclaimer that I don't speak neuroscience. Well, Rick Hansen does, who's one of my favorites, and I'm on his, I, I'm on his mailing list, so I get his emails, and he had one a couple of weeks ago about meditation. And I was reading it, and in it, he talked about the neuroscience of meditation, and I want to touch on that. Um, what he talked about so I could do it a little bit more skillfully than just say some of these things in the brain get impacted, which is how I normally talk about it. But he talked about mindfulness as sustained observing awareness. We are keeping our attention right here right now for a sustained amount of time not just momentarily but we have this clarity about what we're doing and when we meditate regularly it increases the gray matter in various parts of the brain and the gray matter is neuronal neuronal cell bodies and synapses and it increases the gray matter in the insula which is what handles our sense of our own body. It's this connection with our body, which is so important. The Buddha talked about that, you know, the body awareness and the recognition of the parts of the body and how foreign that is to so many of us. So this mindfulness helps this reconnection because so much of that history, so much of that conditioning is held in our bodies. And so when we, it, it, the insula, it, it helps this connection, this sense of our own body. It increases self-awareness in general. Because some, it's when I hurt people, I'm clueless about what I'm doing. I'm not mindful at all. All, I would say all the hurt I've caused in my life. And it's been, I've caused a lot of hurt in my life. I haven't punched anybody. I haven't thrown well I threw a pizza and a hot dog once but um I haven't in general thrown stuff at people but I've hurt people in other ways with being cruel in my actions and my words and my thoughts thankfully I don't always act on my thoughts it's because I was fearful and was trying to take care of myself I didn't know that but with this practice, this mindfulness that increases self-awareness, there's that reality, that recognition of, oh, this is what's underneath it. That, you know, that beginner's mind question, what is this? What is this? What is this? And not just settling for the first answer, but drilling down, down, down. So this mindfulness supports this and... Empathy for the emotions of others in this insula, in this part of the brain. And I've, I've spoken to that before, cultivating compassion and the mirror neurons where we, we can relate to the emotions of others. So important in moving through the world in harmony and not causing harm and, and, and working to be compassionate towards others, which is so much a part of these teachings and so much of a part of how we are invited to be in the world towards others and towards ourselves 
It also, um, meditation, mindfulness increases gray matter in the hippocampus, which is a key in personal recollections. Again, supporting this, this uh, awareness in visual spatial memory, in establishing the context of events. So we have the big picture, the big picture perspective, you know, um, I have conditioning, other people have conditioning, and we're so used to or can very easily see people as cardboard cutouts when they're not. They're three-dimensional flesh and blood, and this cultivation, mindfulness, supports the, the growth of that part of the brain that allows us to see context, perspective, broader understanding instead of just rigidly holding on to one idea, you know, my way or the highway because of so much fear of what's going to happen. And then increasing the gray matter in the hippocampus also calms down both the amygdala, which is the brain that, that triggers the fight, flight, or freeze. That's the reptilian brain. And the, and it, and it calms down and, and it, impacts the production of stress hormones like cortisol, calms those down, the amygdala and the production of the stress hormones. And it does. There's this lowering of, um, you know, the lowering of the reactivity. There's a pause, you know, in that second, second um, foundation of mindfulness, recognizing whether things are unpleasant or pleasant or neutral. I walked in the kitchen the other day and I thought I saw a snake on the floor. Sometimes things get in under our screen door, lizards and things. And I thought there was a snake. And the immediate reaction, the amygdala was like, Whoop! but I paused. I didn't scream. I didn't yell. I didn't run. And I could take a second look and go, it's a brown ribbon. Okay. It's not a snake. It's a brown ribbon. Whew. But even if it had been a snake, like there have been lizards and it's like, okay, I don't have to react, I can, there's a pause. It's like when I see things or experience things that are unpleasant, the reactivity, you know, kind of starts to rise, but then because of this practice, it's like, oh, I can just let it go and say, how would, how, what's an appropriate response rather than a reaction that's a fight or a flight or a freeze? Maybe I can respond in a different way that's wise, that's skillful. Maybe I do nothing. Maybe I just sit. That's also a response. If we have, I was uh, in a Q&A with Larry Ward and his wife, Peggy Rowe Ward, the other night, and I don't think I wrote it down, but she said something about um, sometimes if I don't know what to do, I just don't do anything, because that's, that's a response as well. Not to always have to respond, but to maybe pause. Pause for longer than a second. Maybe pause for a day. Pause overnight. I do that. And I'm grateful I can do that. I don't have to figure it all out at once. So, so meditation supports this. And then it also supports um, increase of gray matter in the prefrontal cortex, which supports executive functions and control and helps to guide in attention, which is what we're doing, this collectedness of the mind, which is you know, often called concentration samadhi, this collectedness. Um, it creases, increases activation in the left 
prefrontal cortex, which lifts the mood. You know, even if things are unpleasant or not going the way we want them to go. I mean, this world we're living in is um, is a shit show pretty much all the time, 24-7. We can tune into that channel shit show or we can tune into... Um, and it's not a checkout. It's a recognition of like, yeah, this is going on and I don't have to follow it down into the depths of despair. I don't let it overwhelm. I do not let it overwhelm. I allow it to be, but I'm, I have this meditation, this mindfulness practice, which lifts the mood. And as I said, it's not a cop-out. It's a necessity. Because if we all got overwhelmed all the time, nothing would, be get, nothing would be done. We wouldn't be able to work towards a better world. We wouldn't be able to work towards ending justice and, and the white supremacist, patriarchal, colonialist culture that we live in here in the West. We wouldn't be able to do that if we were beaten down. So mindfulness is important in this. It helps... I love here I'm going to speak this, this language that I would never remember. It increases power and reach of very fast gamma range brain waves, which promotes learning so we can absorb more. Yeah, so it's the quintessential mindfulness meditation is the quintessential training of attention. You know? It's getting better control of your attention. And getting better control of your attention is the foundation of changing your brain and thus your life for the better. So those are the scientific explanations behind the benefits of mindfulness and meditation and the importance of practice. The Buddha didn't have this language but he had the experience of mindfulness. He had the experience of practice, of dedicated practice and sitting and willingness to be present and come back to the present again and again and again and again. And he began to see with this sustained attention and this non-reactivity, the, 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 the roots of suffering the roots of discontent, the roots of dissatisfaction with the way it is, and instead found this way out. And not just attention, but, but also the important part of this brain, especially that the one part, that first piece, the insula, that increases the empathy for others, that's so important because we are, we don't live as discrete units. I am a person living here and I am not dependent on anybody else. I mean, I, I think I mentioned a week or so ago, I would, I would be a mess if I had to grow my own food and, and make my own clothes and do all that stuff. I am dependent on so many thousands of other people. Don't know them, have no clue who they are, where they live, especially in this global economy we're in. I, we are so interdependent, and that tremendous interdependence creates this false sense of deep 
independence, excuse me, this interdependence creates this false sense of independence. I don't need anybody else. I'm fully self-contained. That's false. And it's insulating. And so practice, this cultivation of empathy and compassion, it also, Rick didn't speak to this in his memo, but my experience and from what I've heard from teachers and multiple people who have done this practice is the recognition of how we are just part of what Thich Nhat Hanh called interbeing. We don't exist in a vacuum. We are a part of nature. We're not discrete from nature. We're all living and breathing in the same air, the same earth, the same dirt, the same water. So that's what this supports. So going all the way back to December 8th, 2,600 years ago, or whenever it was when the Buddha woke up or, or un- gained the insight of this practice, of, of how this all works and how we free ourselves. It's, you know, and now today, 2,600 years later, we have the, the mechanisms to describe it. But it's all pointing to the same thing, uncovering. Excuse me, it's taking the time to recognize what's underneath, disentangling ourselves from this deep conditioning that we are all in. Last week, I, I gave a talk talking, called it the, the water we swim in, to, to recognize that we're actually in water and to see it for what it is and to maybe get out of that pool and into another pool that's wiser and skillful and not so attached to outcomes and expectations and needing things to be the way I want them to be in order to be okay and instead just greeting the world as it is. I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday and, you know, talking about intimacy and not intimacy with a, with a romantic partner, but intimacy with the, our experience, our deepest experience, a deep intimacy with our experience without need for it to be different, without preference. And that's what the invitation of this practice is. Intimacy with ourselves and with the world without needing anything to be different. We may work to change things that are harmful, but in this moment we see it as it is and and acknowledge it as it is. Doesn't mean we acquiesce, doesn't mean we accept and say, all right, this is the way it is, we're stuck. It means, okay, this is the way it is, What's the next indicated thing? What do we do next? How do we, how do we address the suffering, the causes of suffering? That's what we're working towards, ending the causes of suffering. Mindfulness supports that. The Eightfold Path supports that. These teachings support that. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. So those are some um, random notes that hopefully I was able to weave into a little bit of a whole. And I want to thank you all, um, those of you here and those of you in um, podcast land. Thank you so much, so much, so much for your kind attention. And I hope this has been of some benefit. Much love. Thank you for visiting Undefended Dharma. 
These teachings are freely offered. However, if you would like to make a donation to help support the technology that makes these podcasts possible, please visit marystancavage.org backslash support. Thank you.